Magalhaes to Stokes, he's onside! Wagner! Here's Sims. It's a good serve this from Southampton. They could finish the job here. It's Shane Long, and he has done it! Just a minute to play. A stoppage time. Here's Letizia! Hello and welcome to the Saints FC podcast. Um, as always, if you do like what you hear on the Saints FC podcast, please get onto iTunes and give us a review. Uh, tell all of your Saints supporting friends to do exactly the same and download the podcast and subscribe and listen and, and give, us our, uh, give us any feedback that you want. Um, of course, you can email the podcast as well, saintsfc at saintsfcpodcast at gmail.com or get us on Twitter at saintsfcpodcast. Um, so it's international break at the moment. Um, we've got a, a slightly different uh, guest here and I don't have a, a Tom sat alongside me or my brother doing a Saints analysis. Uh, we actually have uh, Michael Cox, uh, who some of you may recognise his voice. So hello, Michael. Welcome to the Saints FC podcast. Hi, John. Thank you very much for having me on. So uh, Michael Cox, um, you may know being the man behind zonalmarking.net. Um, he's written for all sorts of uh, football websites, including ESPN and The Guardian. And he's a regular pundit on the Total Football Show uh, with the famous AC Jimbo, for, for those of us who uh, remember the Italia 90. Um, also behind the Mixer podcast. And I suppose most importantly, and what we're here really to talk about today, um, Michael Cox is the author um, of a book called The Mixer. Um, Michael, welcome to the show. And I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about uh, your book. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, the um, the book is uh, was released to uh, coincide with the 25th anniversary of the Premier League. And it's essentially um, a history of the Premier League, but looking at, looking at things from a tactical perspective, um, I guess anything that happens on the pitch, really, nothing to do with the kind of business side of the Premier League, which I think people focus on a lot when they talk about you know, the money that's come into the game, the broadcasting. This is just everything that happens on the pitch. So the great teams, the great players, uh, the game changes in terms of managers. And uh, yeah, it's out now. Yeah. Um, I was very lucky to receive this book from my wife uh, as a birthday present. Um, it's a bit of a Bible, you know, it's a hefty, hefty book. Um, but it's it's a really brilliant read. And, um, you know, for people my age, like I remember the Premier League starting, um, and, you know, it really is a journey through probably my entire history of, of watching the Premier League. And I think anyone who's kind of watched the Premier League from 1992 onwards is going to find it fascinating. Um, the tactical insights as well is, is something that you don't often get in the kind of depth that, that you do that, um, you know, whether it's on match of the day or whether it's in normal match reports. And this really came from your website, zonalmarking.net. Is that where it all started? And can you tell us, you know, what was the idea behind that and how did that get going? Yeah, I mean, it pretty much came from that. Um, the website I started in 2010, so a while ago now, um, just really a, a bit of a protest of the lack of kind of in-depth analysis on football games. Um, you know, really, I follow two sports. I follow football and cricket. And I always thought football analysis was way, way behind cricketing analysis in terms of statistics but also just in terms of looking in depth at what players are trying to do and what teams are trying to do so you know there was there was a lot more 
tools you could use in terms of stats and, and graphics and um i tried to put those to use really yeah yeah and um you don't have a footballing background in the way that you know alan shearer or gary lineker has come on was this just a hobby which you turned into something bigger yeah a, a little bit i mean it, it was an ambition to um to go into journalism really yeah. and uh you know with the internet with with blogs and with twitter to a certain extent I think the way to get yourself in there is basically just go and do it. And, and if people like what they read, then they'll keep on coming back and, and, you know, hopefully that can lead to, to bigger things. So yeah, a little bit of a hobby. Um, but also, you know, there was an ambition to hopefully end up doing something like this as well. Yeah. So let's get into the book. Um, so it covers 25 years of the Premier League, a few kind of interesting kind of tactical, um, things come out of it and we'll talk about the book more generally but I want to start with the Southampton focus stuff if that's all right and really the first kind of proper mention um, that Southampton get and a, a man who really lit up the early seasons of the Premier League um, is Matthew Letizia. Um and then particularly Matthew Letizia playing in Alan Ball's Saints which many of the listeners of this podcast will remember fondly a time when Alan Ball built the side around Matt Letizia and he just seemed to score all the time. Yeah, I mean, I think Letizia might be the most popular player of the Premier League year in the sense that no one disliked him. You know, he was a kind of everyone, you know, the neutral's favourite player, if you like. And yeah, it was great to go back to, um, I guess, his glory years at Southampton. You know, there were, there were many glory days, but particularly that spell under Alan Ball. And, um, you know, as I'm sure some of the listeners will be aware, he's done some great interviews, quite in-depth interviews, where he talks about when Alan Ball first comes in. And uh, Letizia had really been suffering under Ian Bramford, who, you know, much more of a kind of route one guy or, or balls into channels guy. Yeah. Um, and that obviously didn't suit Letizia's style. He was in and out of the side. And then Alan Ball arrived and, uh, you know, he got the players together on the training ground first day and arranged 10 players on, you know, almost in a mini formation. Um, and Letizia was stood there thinking, oh, God, I'm not going to get into the team again. And then Alan Ball just got him and placed Letizia at the centre of this team and said, this is your best player, get the ball to him whenever you can. And essentially gave licence to Letizia to go where he wanted to go. And, you know, to this day, I'm not sure there's many players in the Premier League that have enjoyed such a free role to the extent that I was having a very boring debate with some, some people the other day about what constitutes a midfielder and what constitutes a forward. And I think Letizia is one of the few players who's a, a genuine in-betweener. Yeah. But he always says that, in that Allen Ball side, he was a midfielder. Um, and that's where he was best because he could pick the ball up from deep and could create. Um, and of course, could score some spectacular long range goals as well. Uh, and he was absolutely prolific um, during that time. I, mean, I don't have the stats to hand, but... I think it's 45 goals in 65 games. Yeah, which is astonishing from <laughs> yeah. midfield. Yeah, and especially at that time when... Um, you know, the, the goals per game rate was slightly low in the Premier League then. Yeah. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't quite so open. Yeah. Um, and, and interestingly, when Alan Ball left Southampton, which I think, you know, a lot of us at Southampton were very disappointed when that happened. And I'm sure Matthew Letizio, uh would have been heartbroken when he left and he, he realised he had to play under a different system and a different manager and one that wouldn't necessarily build the team around him. And when he went to Man City, he tried to do something similar yeah, very similar with a um, a similarly gifted player, uh, Georgie Kinkladze, who um, was, you know, for those too young to remember him, was just an astonishingly talented um, Georgian player who idolised Maradona. 
I don't think it's unfair to say that stylistically he was maybe more similar to Messi in the sense he was left-footed, often coming from the right, incredible dribbler. And uh, he was Alan Ball's first signing. And Ball pretty much did a similar thing. But the problem with uh, King Kladze was that this was his first taste of English football. He didn't speak a word of English. He was living in this hotel on the outskirts of Manchester, didn't know anyone, completely unhappy, didn't get the English game. And when he produced moments of magic, it was absolutely incredible. And, you know, I think probably his most famous goal was against Southampton. Yeah, I was, I was um, going to say, I think most Southampton fans <laughs> yes. will be uh, familiar with King Cladsey, um, because every time you get a highlights reel, you think, oh, it's going to be a, a programme about the Premier League's greatest goals. Brilliant, I'm going to watch this. There'll be you know, at least a dozen <laughs> Letizia ones. But there's always that King Cladsey one against us. Yeah, always always flicking the ball over Dave Besson's head. Um, but sadly, you know, because of these problems with King Cladsey uh, bedding in, um, you know, Ball didn't really know what system to play. He played 4-3-1-2. He tried playing him from the right. He tried playing him up front. And it didn't work. And, and City went down. And, you know, the amazing thing is they went down again. So they went down two tiers yeah. with this incredible player who, you know, retains such a great reputation that he went to Ajax uh, when he left City. And this is Ajax who'd been in the European Cup final two years before. Yeah. So he was a fantastic player. But it just goes to show that, you know, for some players it really worked, uh, you know, that kind of number 10 mould. Zola and, and Burkamp, I guess the obvious examples. And then you have players like King Kladze and Juninho who were arguably as talented, but you know, those teams just couldn't really find the right system. Yeah. And you go into a lot of depth around the positions of, of the players in your book. Um, and Letizia part comes up in, in the number 10 role. Do you think that is kind of really what his role was? Or, I mean, it, I suppose it varied over his time at Southampton, but is that where he had his biggest impact in, in your view? Yeah, it's a funny one. I guess number 10 was his average position, but he was sometimes more of a second forward, sometimes more of a midfielder. Um, yeah, I'd say he was as close as you can get in English football over the last 25 years to a proper number 10. And I think it's telling that him more than other players, he really speaks about the fact that managers needed to build a team around him. And he's, you know, he's quite bitter that, um, you know, when Glenn Hoddle was England manager and Hoddle was a player who, sorry, a manager who admired players like that yeah. because that was the type of player he was. That He didn't really give Letizia a chance. There was that game against um, Italy, yeah. famously, when we lost 1-0, um, when Letizia didn't actually play badly. In fact, I watched the game back. I think he was probably England's liveliest player. But I just think because the team was built around him for that one game and we lost, you know, the media were on to Hoddle. I think Hoddle probably lost faith uh, yeah. in him. And uh, I think that seemed to hit Letizia quite hard because, you know, he was a player who as has been well documented, didn't want to leave Southampton. And so, you know, the obvious step for him was becoming a regular for England. And he got, was it seven caps in the end? Um, it, it was, yeah, something really, really abysmal. Which and, is such and, a shame. And not, not fitting for the type of player that he is. And I suppose it's interesting, if you watch the last two England games, the two qualifiers that we won 1-0 on both of them, we seem to really be lacking a Letizia type player, you know, someone who can somehow make that connection to the forward line and England at the moment kind of remind me a little bit of Southampton at the moment in that frustrating kind of lack of quality and getting the quality balls or quality chances from from midfield yeah I agree completely and uh, I think England's key player actually is uh, another former Southampton player which is Adam Lallana yeah because he's the only one who gets those passing combinations going I think in um in the Euros last year, I think he was England's best player in those first two games. I think Ian really missed him um, for the next two. Um, so, yeah, it's a similar kind of thing. We, you know, if Lilana's not playing, we do lack 
a midfield creator. Obviously, we've got Deli Ali, who I think is increasingly becoming more of a second striker going in behind. But in terms of, you know, someone getting their foot on the ball and dictating the rhythm, um, yeah, again, it's uh, I think Lalana is just um, invaluable for, for England. Yeah, and I don't know whether this is uh, unfairly or not, but I think a lot of Southampton fans really felt like Lana could have been the next Letizia. And there's still a lot of heartbreak about him leaving for Liverpool. Uh, he didn't really help the matter by coming out and saying, you know, just a couple of weeks before he signed for Liverpool that he wanted to stay at Southampton and see his career out there, which seems to be rather ill-informed uh, <laughs> yeah. considering what happened after that. Uh, but interesting that you, you mentioned Lallana. Um, he's someone that we watched come up from League One into the Championship and then excel at the Premier League and then get his chance for England as well. And uh, Richard Chaplow, who I interviewed uh, for last week's pod, he mentioned Adam Lallana as that one player that Southampton couldn't have done without during that, that time. And it, I suppose it's you know very interesting to see how these key sorts of creative players really can sometimes be the difference between a good and a bad team. Yeah, I think he's a wonderful player. And, uh, you know, I must say, uh, when it must have been 2011, I think, when um, the rumours were starting to emerge that Arsenal were interested in signing Oxlade-Chamberlain. Yeah. And uh, I remember speaking to my friend Alec, who's a big Southampton fan, and he was saying, yeah, Oxlade-Chamberlain's a good player, but this Lalana, he'll definitely be a regular for England. Yeah. And this was when you were in League One. I was like, well, you know, he's already 23 or something. I can't ever imagine he'll be a irregular for England but three or four years later he's the kind of player that because he doesn't have that searing pace I think maybe as a youngster those kind of players get overlooked yeah but um he just brings a different kind of vibe to the way that teams play I think and maybe not so much with Liverpool because they're always really high tempo and about pressing yeah. but uh yeah for Southampton he was a joy to watch and uh and for England as well he's just uh, a, a very kind of un-English player I think yeah it's funny that you mention Oxley chamberlain there as well, because he actually was a wonderful player for Southampton, as was Theo Walcott. And there's a little bit of me that kind of thinks, you know, did both of them leave Southampton too early? And, and I don't know if either of them have ever reached the potential that we saw at Southampton, because they were up there with the Gareth Bales and the, the Adam Lallanas as well. Yeah, interesting. I mean, for me, two different cases. I think Theo Walcott's basically been... A very solid, consistent player for Arsenal over the years. You know, maybe I think uh, being included in that World Cup squad before he played a Premier League game was was ludicrous and yeah. just meant that expectations were blown out of proportion. But his goal scoring records, particularly if you look at kind of minutes per goal rather than games, because he's he's subbed on a, yeah. and off quite a lot. But he's actually quite prolific. Walcott, Oxlade Chamberlain, I found really frustrating. Um, yeah, I wrote an article for ESPN uh, about a month ago that seemed to go down quite well, where. Um, I'm, I'm intrigued by the fact he played a lot of rugby when he was a kid and yeah. I always think that he plays football almost in a rugby manner in the sense that he's basically a ball carrier he doesn't really look to play kind of penetrative passes or forward passes he kind of gets the ball and charges into space and then when there's a tackle he kind of either just kind of like tries to speed past them or just kind of offloads the ball sideways yeah. and it's almost like he's still got that rugby mentality because I think his his footballing brain for want of a, a better word is, is not there but you know physically and in terms of um, athleticism and in terms of his attitude as well he's clearly a very a nice guy professional yeah. guy dedicated guy but in terms of his actual technical improvement at Arsenal I think was pretty limited really yeah I wonder if any of that has to do with Clive Woodward being at Southampton at the time <laughs> yeah, he had his formative years there okay well let's uh let's move on to another thing which uh, comes up in your book and I suppose it won't be a surprise to anyone um that 
you write quite a lot about Pochettino, um, his pressing style. Um, and obviously you talk about Southampton, but you also talk about Tottenham Hotspur. What, what did you think when Pochettino arrived on the scene in the Premier League and, and why did he inspire you know, so many words in your book and, and so much interest and intrigue? Well, I must say the first thing is I, I'm still not convinced it was the, the right decision to appoint him. And I realise this is a debate from about four, five years ago now. But um, I thought getting rid of Nigel Adkins at that point was very strange because I know it had been a difficult start to the campaign, but there was a big upswing in performances. And when Pochettino comes in with such a completely different philosophy, it was such a big risk at a time when I'm not sure Southampton had to take a risk. I'm not sure what your view is on that, but I'd be interested to know. Uh, Certainly at the time, um, the mood in Southampton was oh my God, what have we become? You know, we, we've sacked a manager who has done really, really wonderful things for us. You know, getting that double promotion always seemed like a really, really lovely guy. And you're right, you know, maybe in the first few weeks, things weren't going particularly well. But I think at the time we sacked him, we'd only lost, you know, once in a run of about 10 or 12 games. Yeah, yeah, completely. Yeah. And, um, you know, we were starting to look a lot better. And, uh, you know, we found it quite bizarre when we sacked him. But then I suppose perhaps we shouldn't have been so surprised because we did sack Alan Pardew after we beat Bristol Rovers 4-0. <laughs> yes, I remember that. Yeah, that was an interesting one, yeah. Um, so, you know, clearly Southampton have a bit of a ruthless streak. You know, a lot of people, although I think the general opinion was uh, against Claude Puel, mm. probably if you look at it on the kind of bare bones of it, it seems a bit harsh to sack a manager who's got you to eighth in the division and got got you to a cup final. And uh, also had your team beat Inter Milan, although yeah. um, the exit from the Europa League was was pretty turgid and, and a pretty sorry affair. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, to be honest, my, my first thought with Pochettino was surprised that he was being appointed. He'd obviously impressed with Espanyol, but impressed in terms of star rather than results. You know, I think he left them bottom of the table. They would play all-out attack against Barcelona and look great for 20 minutes and then lose 5-1. Yeah. So he was that kind of manager. But, um, I mean, to be fair, from the outset, it was it was obvious that the players were on board. I remember that first game. Was it against Hull, maybe? Might be making this up. It was a Monday night game. Um, and just it was clear from the moment he got, you know, the players um, on the training ground that they were just going to work and they were going to do what he wanted. And that was pressing high up. And, you know, the, the, the emphasis upon pressing is a relatively modern concept, I think, in the Premier League. Obviously, there was a craze about it in the 1980s but even six or seven years ago there weren't many managers who I think would really base their system around pressing Um, and then you had Pochettino come in and uh, you know obviously he's achieved a lot more success at Tottenham in terms of getting them high up the league but the pressing was so much more aggressive at Southampton and it was like that was the main concept of their game you know they were winning the ball high up they had a a couple of great creative players but it was the number one thing about their game, which um, I don't think we'd really seen in English football, with the exception maybe of Andre Villas-Boas, yeah. who obviously you know went wrong for him at both Chelsea and Tottenham. So I think people were quite sceptical of whether that could work in English football. Do you think perhaps that Pochettino coming in with a side like Southampton that had had a double promotion, had players that didn't have you know a glittering past career and perhaps you know opinions uh, above their station meant that he was able to form Southampton into a, a more effective force than perhaps Andre Villas-Boas had to do at Chelsea or at Tottenham because I think with a high pressing game if if one player 
doesn't do their job properly, then it all starts to fall to pieces quite quickly. Yeah, definitely. I mean, he, he clearly had a good squad there and good squad, not just in terms of the technical qualities, but just in terms of the attitude in the squad. Um, you know, I think it's it's obvious from particularly the, the type of player that Southampton produces through their academy that they're not just very good technically, but they are nice guys and yeah. they're not troublemakers and they are, I think, willing to learn is the main thing because Pochettino comes in with this completely new philosophy, really, to a lot of the players. And they just got on board with it so quickly. And, um, you know, it took a while for the results to to pick up, really. But it was interesting that the, I think his first three wins were against three really big teams. Yeah. Certainly City, um, Chelsea, maybe, maybe yeah, Liverpool. And, think, yeah. and then at the same time, they were struggling against the bottom half teams. So it was almost like they needed, you know, teams playing out from the back and, you know, trying to, play football to then press it because obviously you can't really press long ball football yeah I think it was um, Manchester City Liverpool and Chelsea so. okay yeah um, and then between the, in the middle you were losing to QPR and Newcastle, Newcastle United yeah just goes to show the contrast and drawing at Wigan and Norwich so it was really those first few weeks it was you know working against the big teams but not against you know the teams at that point that Southampton were, were competing against yeah. really and the the following season with Pochettino went you know remarkably well I think, um, and we were doing really well, kind of f- flying up the league table. Had a really fantastic start to the season, and for a little while it looked like we might even break into the the Champions League and and, yeah. and qualify into that. I mean, what were you thinking about Pochettino's tactics at that point? Was he really starting to impress from the tactical perspective? Yeah, definitely. I remember being amazed at how good the football was. Um, I went down to St. Mary's to see, I think again, it's whole again, where it was a 4-1 win and Lalana scored a really good goal and just everything came together so well. And I think that was the game just after it'd been announced that Southampton had four players maybe in the England squads. Yeah. And, um, you know, even now we look at it, I think the stat is... 15 of the last 30 England debutants have played under Pochettino. And I think the interesting thing is with him is that it's quite an English strategy, even though the pressing wasn't in vogue 10 years ago, just being energetic and being direct and, and closing down high up the pitch, I think does come naturally to English players. Um, so, yeah, in terms of, um, I mean, you know, as, as you said, or as you were kind of implied, only finished eighth, I think, that season. Yeah. But, um, you know, stylistically, for me, someone looking at tactics, it was really fascinating because it was a completely different style of football to how everyone else was playing. And do you think tactically he's stepped up since he's moved to Tottenham Hotspur? Uh, yes, although I think the funny thing is, I think he clearly saw Southampton as a stepping stone. I think a couple of interviews he gave, he was quite open and yeah. quite blunt about that, to be honest. I think we're quite used to that <laughs> yeah, from our managers. I, m- I imagine. But um, it was for me, it was almost like he was being really extreme at Southampton to attract the interest of a bigger club. And if he was completely, you know, if it was his pinnacle of his managerial career, maybe he would have been a little bit more intelligent and reserved at Southampton. Um, But he basically just wanted to get the attention of a bigger club. And I was looking at the stats for that season when I was researching the book. And I found this really interesting. They had Southampton in 2013-14 had uh, the highest uh, possession share in the league, but only the eighth highest pass completion rate which I find really interesting because you'd usually think those two things would go hand in hand. 
But sometimes we're giving the ball away quickly, but then just winning it really quickly. I mean, so we did have possession. Victor Wanyama in the side at the time. Which <laughs> yeah. In fact, that game against Hull, Wanyama had one of the worst games I've ever seen. Just four or five times he played crossfield passes straight to opposition players. I think he got subbed off in the second half. Yeah. But it wasn't great. It took me about two years after that for me to realise he was actually a good player. Yeah. Because I couldn't get that display out of my head. It was incredible. Um, I have a very similar uh, feeling about Wanyama. And I might say that the best 45 minutes I've ever seen of Southampton, um, perhaps, maybe you could argue the 4-0 win against Arsenal on Boxing Day could, could take this, but we were drawing 0-0 with Fulham at Craven Cottage. Okay. And for the whole first half, Wanyama hadn't completed a pass, to, <laughs> in, in my memory. And Pochettino took him off at halftime. And then second half, we ended up winning 3-0 um, and Lambert, Lalana, and Rodriguez played the most astonishing football. And, and this was a time when, you know, it looked like England were going to go into the World Cup with the front three being the Southampton front three. Yeah. Um, and it was so exciting. And really, the the whole game changed on Wanyama coming off. Okay. Uh, and not giving away the ball. So you know that that might explain that particular statistic. Yeah, you know that does uh, does ring a bell. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I, I mean. I think the the underrated player in that system, probably not amongst Southampton fans, but um, maybe neutrals, is um, is Lambert. Yeah, I mean, what a great player he was! Not just in terms of, I think because he came up through the divisions, people thought he was just a kind of old-fashioned number nine. But his link-up play with Lalana and Rodriguez going in behind him was just fantastic. And uh, it's a shame that his career slightly petered out after that. It didn't quite work at Liverpool because, yeah, um, yeah I remember him being probably second to Lalana in terms of the players that I just really enjoyed watching for Southampton at that period. Yeah, I mean, he was a, a truly wonderful player for Southampton. And, and when he joined from Bristol Rovers, he was your typical number nine. He was maybe a little bit squidgy around the edges. Um, he knew how to finish. He was a wonderful finisher. But you know, something happened in his time at Southampton. It, it, we used to find him quite frustrating. Despite all of the goals, you heard fans getting on his back a little bit in the stadium until Atkins came in he really started to seem to work Lambert into a, a much more complete player and then I think Pochettino took him on another level yeah, it was devastating to see the way his career went after after yeah. the move to Liverpool yeah no it was a real shame but um I liked you know he retired uh, was it last week he yeah last week. I really liked his statement kind of yeah got to play at a world cup in brazil it's like oh yeah. Well, yeah fair enough that's not bad for someone who spent 10 years in uh league league one yeah okay so um let's uh let's move on and we'll go go for kuman because i think you've probably ha had a chance to see kuman a fair bit in his two seasons at southampton you've seen a bit of him at, at everton as well what do you make of him tactically do you think he has his own tactical style or, or is he a bit more of a pragmatist Somewhere in between. I think naturally he comes from that Ajax school, probably more the probably more the Johan Cruyff school in terms of letting players express themselves rather than the Van Hal style, which is really about systems and every player's a number rather than an ind individual. And I think sometimes that, you know, obviously he won the league a couple of times with Ajax, but I think managers, because Ajax has just got such a kind of ingrained philosophy... I think sometimes managers struggle to do it elsewhere. And we, you know, we saw that with Frank de Boer, yeah. most obviously. I think that's a massively extreme example. But I kind of think it applies to Koeman as well. 
And I think his Southampton team was weird in a way because it was... I always struggled to really define it. I think it was just a watered-down Pochettino side. He inherited a very well-drilled team. It wasn't as extreme in terms of the pressing. Not sure he added that much in terms of giving more in the final third. Um, it just seemed it just seemed a little bit of a... felt like Southampton were doing an impression of themselves of the previous season, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I think, you know, maybe you're right in the fact that it was less pressing and perhaps he was... You know, not like Pochettino trying to show off a particular style to get poached by a bigger club, but maybe a little bit more pragmatic. He did seem to change his tactics around a little bit, but there wasn't really a great change, you know, from Pochettino to Kuman. And one of the things that I noticed with Kuman is that when we were on a good run, we were wonderful to watch. The players played with incredible confidence. Uh, Mane was, you know, brilliant under him. Tadic and Pella all seemed to be able to really express themselves un- under Kuman. Um, but then if we had a bad run, things, he just didn't seem to be able to figure out how, how to stop them. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that. And um, I always found him slightly strange. I mean, I try not to judge managers on press conferences because that's what every journalist does and it's boring. But he never seemed to really give off the air. He knew how to make things better. Yeah. If there was something, if there was a problem, I was never sure that Kuman had the fix for it. But equally... I never got the impression that it was ever going to lead to disaster. Yeah. You know, it was always just going to be okay. And um, yeah, I, I've struggled to really make up my mind about Kuman. really. I don't think he's a great manager. I don't think he's a terrible manager. I think he's uh, probably needs the right kind of environment and the right circumstances. And um, to a certain extent, I think Southampton probably was the right circumstances. Yeah. But um, I mean, in terms of results, I think, did he finish seventh? under him I think I'm right in saying uh, we th- had 7th and then 6th 7th uh, and then 6th so it was improvement yeah. both years yeah. from the Pochettino years um, albeit he was uh, Pochettino only had one whole season um, but you probably don't remember it as fondly so it's a funny one well I, I think we have moments that we remember really really fondly like okay. the turning around uh, the game against Liverpool and beating them 3-2 at St Mary's yep. uh, beating Sunderland 8-0 I mean that was a ruthless <laughs> streak that, that yeah. you know we've probably not ever seen in the Southampton side before um, and beating Arsenal 4-0 on Boxing Day which was one of the most bizarre days really because I think we'd had a run where we hadn't won a game in eight matches yes and then up pops Cuco Martina who if you've ever seen him play is possibly one of the worst fullbacks to have ever graced the Premier League <laughs> yeah um unleashing you know what should have been goal of the season I think he yes. got second in the end I agree that was an incredible goal and yeah a really odd game as well because yeah. um yeah I mean Arsenal in quite a good form going into that I think yeah. I'm right saying Southampton in dreadful form so yeah Incredible game. I, I think it was Shane Long, really, was the person that, that, that made that 4-0 happen. He was bullying the Arsenal yeah. players. And so sometimes Shane Long can really do that and be really, really effective. And sometimes he can be really ineffective. Yeah, he's, he's one of the most inconsistent players I've I've come across. And yet I still really like him because every, maybe like three times a season you'll watch him and he's just brilliant. He, he kind of, his movement is great. He's He's kind of a bit of a battler as well. His touch inside the box can be fantastic but can also completely desert him and do you, do you think Koeman's going to last at Everton or do you think you know I have some Everton fre- supporting friends that think he's been found out and think it was only Mane which uh, made him look good I wouldn't completely go along with that but I'm I'm struggling to see what his plan is at Everton and I think it's actually a really bad team they've assembled so many slow players so many number 10s I don't think you can have I don't think you can have two of class and 
Sigurdsson and Rooney in the team, yeah. let alone three. And, you know, this is a guy who came through the ranks at Ajax. And, you know, they always have ball players, of course, at Ajax. But they have width and they have directness down the flanks. And unless they play the lad uh, Calvert-Lewin up front or Lookman to a certain extent on the flank, I think he's okay. I don't think he's great. They just play in front of teams. And I think it's a bit of a shame, really, because um, it would be good to have, you know, a bit of a challenge to the top six. But I don't think it's going to come from Everton. Yeah. Right, let's get into the meaty tactical stuff. Um, I'm going to start with a really annoying question probably for you because you'll think of hundreds of them won't want to narrow it down but what have been you know the biggest developments in tactics in the Premier League I mean it's a it's a very broad question I mean you can see the size of that book yeah but um I mean this could be the opportunity where you say well if you want to know that <laughs> yeah exactly go out and buy the mixer by Michael Cox yeah I mean it's an interesting one because you can look at it in various different ways I mean if you look at it in terms of formations I think there was a big shift when the aforementioned number 10s came in, Cantona, Burkamp, Zola. And teams stopped playing two up front, really, and had one behind and, and an out and out forward. I think that was a very big shift. There was also a shift when Jose Mourinho came and played 4-3-3 and won the league. Um, won the league with a record amount of points. And it felt like within half a season, no one was playing even that number 10. Everyone was kind of packing three, uh, three central midfielders in. And then, the, you know, the most recent uh, formation innovation has been uh, Antonio Conte and to a certain extent Pochettino playing three at the back. And now I think by the end of last season, 17 of the 20 teams played three at the back, which yeah. I think five years before that, only one had played three at the back. And that was Roberto Martinez at Wigan, who, you know, didn't inspire much in terms of the defensive yeah. side of things. But then there's also, you can look at tactics in terms of, you know, the individual positions that have come and gone. Remember people fussing over the Makaleli role when he first, uh, you know, came to England to play for Chelsea. Um, you had a big emphasis upon fullbacks pushing forward, on ball-playing centre-backs, on, you know, wingers cutting inside, you know, playing on the, the opposite side to their stronger foot and emphasis upon forwards linking play. So you can look at tactics in that kind of way. But then there's also just some quite fundamental shifts that I think are maybe overlooked and, and one of those is, you know, again, third time I've referred to him in this answer, but uh, Mourinho and Chelsea. Um, and Mourinho came to England at the same time as Benitez came to Liverpool. They'd both just won European trophies. And they just did things a completely different way in terms of basing their entire game plan around the opposition. And, you you know, you speak to any footballer, well, you speak to most footballers from the 1990s. You know, even like that Newcastle team under Keegan, they didn't mention the opposition once. He'd read out the team sheet just before you know, when he got the team sheet half an hour before the game. But the idea that they would work on something in training to exploit the weak, uh, weaknesses of the opposition is completely foreign to them. And then you've got Mourinho who comes in, who basically gets his most trusted coach, which is Andre Villas-Boas, um, to be an opposition scout. He's not coaching the players, he's an opposition scout, trying to find weaknesses in the opposition. Gives the players a kind of six-page dossier every Wednesday on the weaknesses in the opposition. And you've got Benitez who subjects his players to these you know, lengthy, intense video sessions on, you know, gaps in the opposition. You have a massive change in terms of the way that teams are approaching games. And I think while that probably made the Premier League a little bit boring at that time, you know, the, the games between the big sides were always nil-nil, one-nils. But it also coincided with, for the first time, English teams really dominating the Champions League because I think that was probably the biggest step forward in terms of the tactics. You know, they, they start to get tactics. It's not just about your team. You've got to look at the opposition, study the opposition and have players that are willing to follow instructions. So, 
I mean, you mentioned Mourinho quite a few times in that. Is he probably the manager that has had the biggest influence on, on the Premier League then in the 25 years? I mean, in terms of being a revolutionary, I think possibly because he came in and he just injected some something that we hadn't massively seen before. Um, so, you know, he was just an overnight success. There's no doubt about that. I mean, what I found, and this was probably inevitable, but midway through the book, I realised that, you know, there was a hell of a lot of Sir Alex Ferguson in there. And he was never really an innovator, but he always stayed not ahead of the game, but roughly up with yeah. the game and, and obviously had a fantastic squad at United. So, you know, I think overall Ferguson was clearly the biggest managerial influence on the Premier League. But the Premier League has depended so much upon foreign, uh, foreign influence. Um, you know, Mourinho certainly, and going back before that, Wenger and his, you know, people talk about the diet and the kind of, professionalism but also just in terms of the way they played the game they counter-attacked they weren't long ball they filled the team with technical players um and you know even the the managers at the top of the league now um there are no english managers at the top of the league it's all foreign managers all broadly representing their own kind of nation styles i think yeah yeah it's interesting that you mentioned uh arsene wenger there because in all the years of watching Southampton at St Mary's and all the opposition teams that we've had, that invincible side that Arsenal had, I I still think is the best team I've ever seen play at St Mary's. And I think the match is famous for Thierry Henry missing an open goal from about you know 15 yards out, um, which was hilarious. But And they won 2-0, but really they could have beaten us 6 or 7-0 that day. Yeah, it was a fantastic team. And... Uh... I mean, it's an obvious thing to say, but no team had gone unbeaten for over 100 years, and it's a remarkable thing. Um, but, the, you know, there were a lot of good teams of that era. You know, when those when the big four, as people used to say then, were really strong. You know, the next year, Chelsea only lost one game all season, which was remarkable. And then, uh, you know, I think three years, three years after that, yeah, three years after that was that United team that won the European Cup. Yeah. And that was Ronaldo's peak year for United. So I think those three teams really stand out and that's within, you know, five, you know, five year period. I think probably they were the best three teams of the Premier League era. Okay. And another thing um, I'd like to kind of quiz you on a little bit is, is tactical surprises. So, you know, for example, someone changing up the system to try and gazump the opposition. Um, and, and have you seen some you know interesting examples of that? Yeah, I mean, maybe not historically difficult to pick ones out, but I think that's what Guardiola's done repeatedly this season. Um, to the extent that other managers are now adapting their team, adapting their formation to suit what they think Guardiola will do, and he's then maybe deliberately moving away from it. So that was very obvious in that game at Bournemouth. That actually City struggled to win and only won late on with that Sterling goal. But uh, City had been playing three at the back until then. Eddie Howe changed his system to play three at the back and match them for wing-backs. And then that's the first time that Guardiola plays a back four this season. So he's always trying to stay one step ahead, always trying to keep the opposition guessing. And I think, to be fair, sometimes he overdoes it. I think sometimes he can overcomplicate things. And I think the players he's got at City are maybe not as intelligent as the players at Bayern and Barcelona. But he's clearly someone who, you know, for all the emphasis upon a clear philosophy and a, a Barcelona way of playing is actually very much a tactician and is constantly trying to get, you know, trying to get the, uh, get one over on the opposition manager. And uh, I wonder if you have a kind of 
favourite game that you can look back at as a, as a real tactical masterclass? So, you know, two great managers fighting it out between each other, maybe a couple of different tactical changes throughout the game that, that really stands out for the, the tactical purist. Um, I mean, in terms of decisive changes, it's maybe not um, an obvious choice and maybe not a very popular answer considering uh, you're a Southampton fan. But I remember a couple of times Harry Redknapp at Tottenham was just fantastic at changing the game. There was um, a game at the Emirates in 2010, I think. Yes, uh, 2010-11, um, when Tottenham were 2-0 down at half-time and playing for 4 one And he changed things just by putting Defoe on for, I think, Aaron Lennon. Van der Vaart went right. And just the fact that Tottenham now had pace in behind just completely stretched Arsenal. meant there was space between the lines. Arsenal were kind of not compact at all. And that was a real big theme for Redknapp. You know, he wasn't a a tactician in terms of a Benitez, someone who would study the opposition on, on video for a week. But I think something about him, he did kind of have a, a clear idea of what was happening in the pitch in front of him. He was quite good at making in-game changes, yeah. but not so good at, you know, devising starting lineups. I, I've got to admit, I didn't think in a discussion about <laughs> tactics, Harry Redknapp would, would come up at all. Yeah, he's a surprise choice, but it's funny because I think there's a, a massive difference between someone like him and someone like Benitez in terms of the way they present themselves. Yeah. So I think if Benitez could win a game in any way, he would want to win it tactically. Yeah. Whereas if you look at his two trophies with Liverpool, one was that incredible comeback in Istanbul, which, okay, he changed things at half time. But that was more about, you know, the old fashioned kind of passion and yeah. never say die spirit. And then there was that, uh, the next one was the FA Cup final where Gerard just had a storming game. And so the, the two trophies he's got were not really down to tactics. Yeah. But I think he always wants to promote himself as a tactician. Whereas if Harry Redknapp won a game through tactics, I don't think he'd want to say that. Yeah. I think he'd want to say, oh, you know, I, I've got the right players in. I picked the right team, that kind of thing. He's... he's it's almost like tactics is a dirty word for that kind of old school English manager. Yeah. And, um, you know, what, what do you think went wrong for Redknapp at Birmingham this season? Because I, I've got a friend uh, who supports Birmingham City and I think it was the, the day before he got sacked, we we're in the pub discussing it. He was quite excited about going to the game. And I said, Redknapp's not going to last. He'll be gone in no time at all. And he was convinced that Birmingham were, were playing quite well, that, that he would last. And then, you know, the next day he was, he was gone. Yeah, I must say, I, I haven't seen any of, of Birmingham's full matches this season, so I can't comment with too much authority. But I think throughout his time in the Premier League, Renap generally liked flair players. You know, yeah. he wasn't a kind of back-to-basics, get-it-up-to-the-big man. Um, he liked good players. You look at that Tottenham team, they had Bale and Lennon on the flanks, and then Modric and Van der Vaart as two of their three midfielders. And sometimes Huddleston as well, who was yeah. a great pass for the ball. And I think dropping to that level you maybe can't so much rely upon great technical talents because the championship as as people always say is a hard slog yeah you know it's 46 games it's often not great pitches the refereeing is a bit more um lenient you're getting tough tackles and i think you know without a couple of flair players to depend upon um which Rinap always has even at qpi I had someone like tarabs who we really got the best yeah. from um i'm not sure birmingham had that caliber of player really yeah Okay, so let's um, kind of move on to the next topic. And um, really, this is kind of what can we expect to see this season in terms of tactics across the division? Um, you know, are there kind of new strong trends coming through? Um, 
and is there anything that a mid-table side like Southampton could do to perhaps break the monopoly on the big six teams? To start with the end question, I actually don't think so. I, I think a, a mixture of the fact that the big six sides are pretty strong at the moment and they have got good managers. You know, there, there's been times in the past where you've had good teams who have had, you know, an Avram Grant in charge or... Pellegrini when everyone knew he was going to get sacked um, or you know the David Moyes era at United the Hodgson era at Liverpool we don't have any of that we've got um, you know probably five of the best eight or nine managers in Europe I think yeah. and it's just going to be really hard to topple them I think the tactical trends I think there's two things to say here one is that there's still a little bit of a, a fixation upon three at the back because of Chelsea's success last year and Tottenham's success last year. Although, having said that, I think I'm right in saying only four teams played three at the back last weekend. Nevertheless, I do think that it's just something that's come into the game that we didn't see four or five years ago. Um, and at the top, I think the really interesting thing is you've got six managers from six different countries. So you've got um, Wenger's from France, uh, Guardiola's from Spain, Mourinho's from Portugal, Conte from Italy, Klopp from Germany, and Pochettino from Argentina. And to a certain extent, they all kind of embody those styles. And so that's what I'm finding quite interesting when you get two managers coming up against each other. If you have a kind of Chelsea against um, Manchester City last weekend, you had a real kind of old school Italian manager in Conte who was about structure and defensive organisation. And then you had a manager in... Guardiola, who wanted his team playing possession football, who wanted to get his attackers into space. And I think just seeing how those kind of battles, you know, unfold has been really interesting so far. Um, and I must say for the rest of the Premier League, I think it's, and again, this refers back to the um, the end question, which I answered first. I'm not sure there's any teams that are really pushing to be either A, challenging the top teams or just doing something interesting tactically, to be honest. And I'm finding it, I find it a little bit um, depressing almost when it's come to match of the day because there's a lot of games that don't feel that inspiring for the neutral. And you only need three teams, let's say. You know, Southampton when they're under Pochettino, even West Ham when uh, when they're under Billich, when um, Pae was on form, you know, and Newcastle in form under Benitez. But they just don't seem to be those any really interesting teams you know not necessarily just quality but teams who are doing something different I'm not sure we have that maybe the one exception and I must say that I've only seen one of their games this season is um, Watford under Marco Silva and I'm seeing them I'm seeing them on Saturday for the first time live so maybe looking forward to that but uh, I think it's a little bit of a dull Premier League this season I was wondering if you might mention Marco Silva's Watford and um there was a lot of uh, talk around Southampton potentially getting uh, Silver in as the manager after Claude Puel, but we hadn't actually set Puel by the time that, that he was appointed at Watford. Um, but certainly in the game against Southampton, they looked really interesting. And I would say they would probably be my pick um, for anyone to kind of like come up and, and break that mould. I think lots of people had high hopes for Koeman's Everton, but... As you mentioned before, they, they've got a lot of issues themselves, and I, I don't mm. think they've spent their money particularly um, well. Um, sad to say, I don't think Southampton are going to be the team that season. It, it seems that the problems and the reasons why we sacked Claude Puel at the end of last season seem to still be haunting us this season, and I'm not really sure that Pellegrino has made his mark on Southampton uh, yet. 
Yes, I mean, uh, it's been quite flat so far, hasn't it? Um, kind of continuation of of last season, really. I mean, from what I've seen, the defence looks very well organised and open play. Conceded a couple of sloppy goals from set pieces. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's about going forward, isn't it? And I, I do wonder whether you have the the midfield creativity, really, in terms of not just a kind of someone playing the assists because you have sometimes Tadic is on form, sometimes he's not, but he can do that. But just, um, you know, I'd be interested to know what you thought, uh, think of Lamina, who's clearly a talented player, but I think is um, I'm not quite sure he's what you need alongside Romeo. Um, I'd be interested to know what you think about the balance of that. Um, I, I can see where you're coming from in the fact that they're perhaps two defensively minded midfielders. However, from what I've seen from Lamina, he is a wonderful player to watch. I, I'd say he's kind of, he's got the Wanyama kind of, bullying nature when it comes to the, the defensive action um, he seems to have a mind like Morgan Schneidlin's and he seems to have a, a few little tricks up his sleeve as well he was really fantastic against uh, Crystal Palace uh, when we beat them I mean admittedly against a, a, a poor Palace side I guess we haven't seen an awful lot from him going forward but he does seem to be more attacking minded you know, than, than perhaps Oreo Romeo or even Wanyama was yeah, certainly more of a kind of, a little bit of a box-to-box play, maybe not with that dynamism. But uh, I think that the reason I worry slightly about him is he, he came from Juventus and he played a kind of jack-of-all-trades role. Yeah. He played left wing this week, he played defensive midfield this week, he'd kind of go wherever. And Juventus are really good at producing that kind of player and using that kind of player. But I often think when they go to other teams, and you saw this with Giaccherini at um, Sunderland, who did a really good job for Juve, but then when you're put into a team and it's a completely different situation, you go from being the kind of 12th man, if you like, to someone who's got to really stamp your authority on the team. I think psychologically, that's a big, uh, big shift really. And especially in terms of, you know, coming to a new league. Um, I mean, I do like Southampton's first 11. I, I like, um, I've been saying Stephen Davis is underrated for so long, but it seems like everyone thinks that now. So he's yeah. not underrated anymore, <laughs> but it's just whether you have the kind of real ball player from deep, I think, you know, from the Southampton games I've seen, um, I haven't seen that much kind of invention from deep positions, despite the fact the three central midfielders are quite good technically. Yeah. I I would reserve judgment on Lamina until you get a chance to see him in the flesh, because having seen him play, I was really, really impressed. I think he yeah. is going to be a big star in the Premier League. Um, hopefully I'm proved right. Um, I, I get what you mean about the kind of ball playing, you know, from, from in deep and... I actually think maybe the the player to do that uh, could be Wesley Hoot, our Mm -hmm. new signing. Um, He seems to have a wonderful left foot and can ping a ball, you know, 40 or 50 yards, pick out Tadic, normally with his left foot going across the pitch. So out to whoever's playing on the right seems to be the the way forward. But really, we do rely a lot on our wing-backs or... I suppose uh, left back and right back, depending on what the formation that we're playing. But Bertrand and Cedric Suarez getting up and putting crosses in. But the problem is, is we no longer have a Pella or a Lambert type player, and and that seems to be where a lot of our issues are coming from. We, we have the kind of forwards that need someone from midfield unlocking it, mm-hmm. but we're still playing kind of wings and crosses for someone who should be a big number nine. Yeah, and I think you know from what I've seen, it does seem like it's that is just a problem with the players rather than something the manager can necessarily change. I can't really work out quite how Southampton will will kind of define themselves in the attacking phase of play. 
Um, and, you know, you look at the goals scored figure, not just the fact that they haven't scored many overall, but I think I'm right saying no one scored more than once. So it's not even like you kind of, you've got a player in a little bit of form who you yeah. can kind of base your team around. So, I mean, you hope that it will improve with more time on the training ground, but um, it feels like they are at least one player short of just, you know, pushing for that seventh place, I'd say. Yeah, I think January would be interesting to see if we, we do kind of pick up some some more players. The next thing uh, I, I think that might be interesting to talk about is when you go and watch a match uh, and looking for the tactics, what, you know, what's the best perspective? Do you like watching it on the television? Do you like being in the ground? Do you like being high up, low up? How, how do you really kind of set out your, your idea when it comes to looking at, at the games? Yeah, I mean, in general, I, I prefer to be at the games, but at, at games where you have an elevated view. You know, if, if you're sitting very low, I find it really difficult to read the game and to see the patterns there. So in that sense, I'd rather kind of watch it on TV with an elevated camera angle than be in a bad position. But yeah, I, personally, I don't think there's anything better than having an elevated view of a game. Um, you can just see the formations and you can see the the gaps in the space and the players that are exploiting it. I think that's um, that's crucial. I mean, the only caveat to that is... Um, you know, if you're watching it on television and, and I'm doing a report or whatever, then you have got the pause and rewind and just watching things twice is is super helpful, yeah. especially after a goal or whatever. Um, but yeah, I'm surprised that managers always sit in dugouts because I think generally they get a very poor view and, you know, you go 10, 15 years ago and Sam Allardyce always used to sit up in the stands and, and um, I've seen him questioned a couple of times about why he now sits downstairs. And he can't really put his finger on it. So I assume it's just because he likes shouting abuse at the fourth official and the referee. <laughs> um, because you think, you know, Allardyce, for all his critics, is a very kind of um, methodical thinker. He, you know, he does things for a reason, but uh, he, he hasn't been able to explain what that reason is. So it must be something underhand. Yeah. Um, Michael, I've noticed that you've got quite a few uh, notes with you today. So... I don't want to have missed out on any gems that you may have researched um, previous uh, to this podcast. So, are there any topics that we haven't covered yet that, that you'd like to get onto? Uh, nothing in particular. I mean, just one thing. I, I went through and I looked at all the all the goals Southampton scored and conceded so far this year. And one thing that that came to mind, and it's something I've had a bit of a thing about for the last couple of years, is. Um, well, it was really a question for you. I wonder what your opinion on uh, Fraser Forster would be. Um, because I've you know, heard a lot of good things about him with Celtic and almost before I'd seen him that regularly. But um, whenever I see him, I'm disappointed in his kicking. I always think he looks a bit suspect from long range, maybe because of his footwork. I mean, I, I'm really not an expert on goalkeeping, the worst goalkeeper in the world. But I always think he looks a bit static. Um, and just seemed to make a few too many errors for me as well, just unforced errors. So, you know, it's, it's the, the position you don't really talk about in terms of tactics. But um, yeah, I'd be in, intrigued to know what you think of him. I know there's going to be a lot of listeners, uh, you know, on the tube or, you know, driving to work or whatever, listening to this, nodding their heads, thinking, yep, yeah, yeah. You, you've hit the nail on the head with Fraser Forster. Um, he is suspect from long range and he does seem to struggle to get down particularly to, to shots that are that are fired low um but what he is brilliant at is the the kind of close range uh, shots and um i i really like fraser forster he's put, you know done the best goalkeeping performance which i've ever seen which was at, at the emirates a couple of years ago yeah i was at that game that yeah. was incredible yeah um no no and, and he was it was just unbelievable every time you thought 
oh, here, here come Arsenal, we're, we're bound to concede at this time. And I, I have no idea how many shots on target Arsenal had that day, but it must have been, you know, into double figures. And, and Fraser Forster was incredible throughout that whole game. And I was behind that goal for, for one of the halves where we just faced this constant onslaught. So I've always thought he's a really, really great goalkeeper in that sort of situation, but he definitely does have his uh, suspect moments. And... I think it's quite telling that he got dropped from the England squad, not this time round, but but last time round. I think his stock does appear to be going down. Yeah, I mean, it seemed like maybe 18 months ago he was next in line. You know, Joe Hart was wobbling there. Well, he'd been wobbling for a long time. But now it seems with, um, you know, yesterday it was Butland who started instead. Pickford, you know, seems to be doing well for Everson. Had a good season at Sunderland. Not sure about Tom Heaton. I think he's probably... I think I'd probably take um, Forster over him. But uh, yeah, it seems like he's going to be destined to remain in the shadows rather than, um, you know, be a first choice for England, which seemed inevitable at one point, which I guess is um, just the fact you can have a regular English Premier League goalkeeper that isn't automatically in the squad is a bit of an improvement from 10 years ago when we were kind of having to dip into the championship. I remember when Rob Green and David James were in the championship and, and were getting in the England squad. But uh, it's good for England to have options, I guess. Yeah, and I think, you know, we've seen a few glimmers in, in the last couple of fixtures where perhaps he's, he's looking a bit better. So hopefully, you know, this has been a little bit of a blip in his career, but certainly the last kind of six months or so haven't haven't been particularly good for him. Um, so I'm interested to know kind of what, what's next for Michael Cox. What have you got coming up? Um, have you ever been invited to give kind of technical tactical insights or scouting reports for any clubs or have any clubs ever approached you on, on your thoughts for things? Um, a couple of times actually, but it wasn't something I really wanted to pursue on a kind of full-time professional basis and it's something you really have to go on, go in for. You yeah. know, maybe surprisingly you can't kind of do it part-time. They want you working in the club uh, in-house and uh, you know, I really I want to be a journalist and, um, and do this kind of thing. So, you know, I enjoyed writing the book and um, hopefully do something along those lines again but um uh what i'm doing now this season really is um the totally show as you mentioned which is a a bit of a breakaway effort from um the old guardian football weekly podcast um but that's tremendous fun and um you know it's going really well i think we've got a good um a good selection of guests and obviously james richardson is um you know i guess for people of our age is kind of the football presenter certainly from my point of view is uh you know, football Italia was the thing that got me into football, really. So, um, you know, that's always fun to do. But, uh, yeah, just looking to go to a, a lot of matches this season because the book took a, a lot of researching and um, maybe didn't get to pay so much attention to the day-to-day uh, Premier League stuff. But uh, there's still a few sides I'm yet to see live and I'm very aware one of them is Southampton. Yeah. So <laughs> I think I'm at St. Mary's in the uh, start of next month, maybe. But, uh yeah, enjoy. I always enjoy going down there. I always yeah. enjoy the train ride down there. In yeah, yeah. No, it is. It's a nice little ride down from uh, London, obviously where I live as well. Maybe we'll give you a call uh, once you've seen Southampton. You can give us a little bit more of an insight into Pellegrino. You know, yeah, what's gone wrong or, or what's going right? Hopefully by that stage. Hopefully, yeah. I'll have to pick my game carefully because yeah. it sounds like there's been some shockers recently. But uh, yeah, hopefully things will get better. Um, and uh, so. Do you want to tell everyone about where they can find your book? Is, is it going to be... It's in hardback at the moment. Are we going to see a, a, a softback? What do I say? Paperback. Uh, paperback. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, not, not for a while, actually. Not until uh, early next year. Yeah, it's available in hardback from the usual bookstore places. I'd 
probably don't need to plug them. Uh, it's also available on uh, an ebook if you're that way inclined. Also on audiobook, which I must admit, until this came out, I uh, I'd never listened to an audiobook before. But yeah. the guy, I, I don't do the reading. You'll be relieved to hear the guy who does the reading called Colin Mace. Um, who's an incredible voice actor who does the appropriate accents and impressions of everyone I've quoted in the book. Really? Which when, you know, I've quoted literally hundreds of people <laughs> from, you know, Geordies to Americans to uh, South Africans to uh, Georgians, like Georgie Kinkladze. And uh, just the uh, just the range of accents is, I'd say, probably more impressive than the actual content of the book. So, yeah, if you like podcasts, maybe the uh, audiobook might suit your needs. Yeah. Um, I would say to listeners, absolutely go down to the bookstore, get the mixer, put it on your birthday list, put it on your Christmas list if you're going to have to wait that long. But um, it's a really, really fascinating um, book to read. Despite it being enormous, you do whiz through it quite quickly because you know, it's, it's quite addictive in the way you kind of keep on getting on. It's like, oh, I wonder who, who he's going to mention next, which manager is going to be coming up. And, and um, definitely worth listening to, uh, to reading. And um, probably also worth listening to the Mixer podcast where you go through each position in the side, episode by episode, and and get to talk those through as well. Yeah, that was a a kind of accompanying thing. And uh, yeah, it's just Premier League nostalgia, I guess. Uh, Kind of Premier League years, but maybe a little bit more in depth on the tactical side of things. But uh, yeah, thank you for your kind words. Yeah. All right, everyone. So we're going to wrap up now. Uh, Thank you very much uh, for listening. Um, as always, do send us any feedback. Uh, we're on Twitter at Saints FC Podcast. You can email us saintsfcpodcast at gmail.com. Um, but most of all, tell all of your friends to subscribe to the Saints FC Podcast on iTunes and give us a lovely review as well. Thank you very much for joining us this evening, Michael. It's been My a real pleasure. pleasure. Thank you very much. Cheerio.